Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now on with the show. Writing just gave me that sense of purpose, that sense of passion. And I've seen it help a lot of veterans as well, too. It gives them something to focus on besides those negative feelings. And then writing itself is a process that helps you make sense of things as well, too. As you're processing the, the story and what happened, it gives people an opportunity to deal with it and look at it on a sheet of paper rather than playing it on repeat in their heads again and again. Hello world and welcome back to the One Step Beyond podcast. This is season or series two, episode six already. And if I was going to date stamp this, I would say Happy New Year 2023 because it is at the time of recording this. However, I have learned uh, that over the couple of years this show's been running, people do find their way to old episodes. It's surprising how they tick over. So if you're listening to this, you could ignore the date stamp. But of course, there's always some kind of relevance to it. And in this case, it's because we're talking about a new book that just came out. It's a graphic memoir. It's by Michael Anthony, my guest on this show. And it is called Just Another Meat Eating Dirtbag. And it may not be quite what you think unless you've gone and read the show notes, which is going to be really strange because people don't do that very often. Michael is a former U.S. Army veteran. He was in the Iraq War. He worked as an operator room technician and uh, which means he saw a lot of blood not necessarily not literally on the battlefield but he certainly saw it you'll hear about some of that in graphic detail in what follows we do discuss the war we do discuss ptsd we discuss michael's other books we discuss his help with um, veterans in terms of writing projects to write their way out of ptsd and then happily we get around to this graphic memoir published by the wonderful street noise books with artwork by shay simone and uh, in talking about just another meat-eating dirtbag we will learn that it's actually a love story. Of course, the title slightly gives it away. There is a discussion about uh, diet and vegetarianism and animal rights and uh, probably not exactly what you think it would be if you know me and know where I come from and what we often talk about here. Uh, And there may actually even be a happy ending to the story as well. And for those who are regular listeners, you know that I normally go around with the tagline positively engaging with the world outside our door. Well, I think actually this time it's uh, it's it's a, it's almost a reverse of this. It's actually positively engaging with the world inside our heads. And people like Michael are important. He's not only a very, very good, honest, direct writer, but he is also an upstanding citizen in terms of uh, you know trying to help other people with this as well. He does have um, an MFA in creative writing, and he did get to go to college after coming back from the Iraq War. It took him a few months because he went through his own downward spiral first, which of course you will realise he has fortunately emerged from, even if others aren't always 
quite so fortunate. I won't be seeing anything too positive of the great outdoors in the near future because I managed to go and fracture my knee uh, right before the uh, holidays. Uh, I did it in a very un-rock and roll, rock and roll way, falling off a stage, <laughs> fortunately a short stage, working with kids amidst the chaos. And um, I'm sort of managing to laugh and smile about it. I did just find out uh, on the eve of putting out this episode it's not going to need surgery, should heal itself in time. That's good news but you know every time I do a episode like this and hear other people's stories I realize that my own injuries are relatively minor in the grand scheme of things. I also recognize not everybody got born with uh, uh, the optimistic glasses half full gene that I seem to get born with and hopefully just uh, doing a show like this that can tackle a lot of different subjects will encourage um, those who you, you know maybe got born with the glass half empty gene that they can find and seek help and there are people willing to help them. Now normally uh, again, I would uh, see this out, uh, this intro out by saying something like, you know, strap on your skis, strap on your running boots, go barefoot out in the wild. I am going to say this time round, in fact, kick off your shoes and put on some slippers if that's what you want. Uh, curl up in bed or lie down on the couch, dim the lights, get yourself a nice beverage and treat this episode like you would a good book as we prepare to go one step beyond. like to welcome to One Step Beyond, Michael Anthony. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. I've been asking my guests on this series to just define themselves in a single sentence, like 10 words or less. So you're introducing yourself to the public. How would you define yourself? Uh, I would describe myself as, you know, obviously a husband and father first, but otherwise just a writer. That, that's all I can think of beyond that. Just a husband and a father and a writer and someone just trying to do some good in the world. That's perfect. That's absolutely fine. I had another guest who was a really, really well-known runner and he went father, husband, son, brother first. And I was like, man, you great. You got your priorities right. So okay. as a writer, you've written three books. You've written a lot of magazine articles and done a lot of other work within writing. All of your books do in some way, shape or form concern your own involvement uh in the in the iraq war uh two of the books i've read and the one we're really here to talk about is this wonderful new graphic novel on street noise books and um, you wrote the prose it's called just another meat eating dirt bag and the art is by i, I don't want to mispronounce so the art is by uh shay simone I was going to mispronounce. I'm really glad I asked you to say that. And wonderful art it is too, and we'll get to that. It's adorable. But uh, I read two of your books. So I read this, of course, and I read the um, the young veteran's memoir, which is called Civilianized, which is about your try trying and trying is the operative word to adapt to civilian life after coming back from, from Iraq. Um, I think just to give us some background, can you give us like your age and um, when did you join the army? What was your job? Uh, I think it was after 9-11 that you joined, but was it before or after the Iraq invasion that you joined? Yeah, sure. So I first joined the military when I was 17 in 2013. So we'd already invaded 
uh, Afghanistan, and we had already invaded Iraq at that point. So I joined when I was 17 and then actually left for training when I was 18. That's incredibly young. Oh, I come from a military family, so I had five older brothers that had joined before me, and my father was in, both my grandfathers were in. So when it came time for me to, uh, you know, college or the military, military was an easy, easy decision. You know, it was like joining the family business. Okay. How long was your tour of duty? So I was in the Army Reserves for a total of six years. I was in Iraq for a year, and I worked as an operate, operating room technician, which means I just assisted doctors during surgery. So if if you imagine, if you've ever seen a TV show or a movie and there's surgery going on and a doctor yells out scalpel and then a hand reaches across and hands him that scalpel, that's what I did. I was that hand that would just assist doctors during surgeries. Right. And in that process, you saw an awful lot of blood, I gather, from reading your books. Uh, yeah, I mean, plenty of blood working in the hospitals and we don't have the we did not have the state-of-the-art technology or tech or medical equipment so we had to do a lot of old school stuff working on machinery from the 70s and 80s or just stuff that we took over from the the Iraqis so it wasn't the best equipment and we had to make do with what we had and we were seeing some pretty intense injuries out there for American soldiers combatants civilians so pretty much saw it all in the hospital Right. And because you're out there in a war zone, uh, there were a lot of IEDs, a lot of explosives. I'm sure you saw a lot of uh, casualties brought in from those from those explosions. Um, this is not like being in a city hospital where you might get your gunshot wound, but you're also just dealing with people who need operations. You're dealing with people who are being blown up and shot at routinely and the horrors of war. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we've done single, double, triple, quadruple amputations. I mean, just the most intense injuries you can imagine on just a daily basis is what those hospitals see in a war zone. Right, right. I, I do have to ask, were there questions coming up about, like, is this working? Are we doing the right thing? Did we do the right, you know, did we, if we did the right thing in toppling Saddam Hussein, are we still doing the right thing? Or do you just have as that military man and coming from a a family of, of military men, just, this is just my job. I'm here to save lives, not to take lives. And that's what I'm going to do. From my own perspective and, you know, conversations with all my buddies from the military, you know, hundreds of vets. I mean, I'm not speaking for all veterans here, but I think for the most part, a lot of veterans saw Afghanistan as more of a just war because that's where Osama bin Laden was hiding. And that's where he had planned 9-11 from. And then a lot of them see Iraq as just more of a, why do we even invade Iraq in the first place? You know, so I mean, from that perspective, it's definitely that Afghanistan seemed, seemed more of a reason to invade versus Iraq. But I mean, if you look at the history of the United States to have the longest war in the history of our country to take place in modern times and just politicians thought we'd be out in six months in a year and have it go on for 20 years. And then when we finally do leave Afghanistan and Iraq, it's just this sloppy exit. Uh, I know when... I served in Iraq. We first did a couple months in Mosul, and then we went to Al-Assad. And at the time, Mosul was a really hotbed of activity. And it always was at, after we even left. And at one point, when our hospital cleared out of Mosul, we were handing a lot of our hospitals back over to the new Iraqi government. And Mosul was too intense for us to hand back over or even give to the World Health Organization, the WHO, who had taken over all the hospitals. So it was almost like all the work we did there, and then we just left. And then 
Mosul was one of the first places that ISIS had initially taken over. So it's like we had done all this work over in Iraq, and then we leave. The WHO can't even take over our hospital. So then the militants and the ISIS people move in and take over. So it's like you, you do all this stuff, and then you leave, and then a new enemy comes in, and you know probably all, a lot of the people we worked hard to save were probably killed by ISIS anyway. So we had spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money to save some of those civilians and people that were caught in the conflict. And they honestly probably all died a couple of years later from ISIS and the on, on fighting with the Kurds there. As, and that's truly, it's truly tragic. And at the same time, as you detail in civilianized, it's not like, um, you know, your own army setup is, is perfect. A lot of what you're, you're, you deal with with this uh, PTSD when you come back is the fact that there are there are people in leading your units uh, that are um, I mean you can say this better than me but they are sort of falsifying battle records so that they can receive awards and you know that they are those people are cowards and so I, I would I would appreciate maybe you know just correcting me or putting that in your own words because I want to make sure I understand this understood it correctly, but you've got that sense as well of like hang on we went over there and and then the people that that were the worst people get to get the medals, so there was some of that going on as well wasn't it I think it's actually something that led you to finally start writing about all of this. Yeah, I mean absolutely there are plenty of you know. Not everyone who puts on the uniform is automatically a hero. You know, there's plenty of people that don't honor the uniform, don't honor the work that the, the troops do in the military. And the thing is that those people that don't honor the uniform, don't honor the work being done or the sacrifices, those people are often the people that are most willing to lie about their background and, and their experiences. And then they lie about their background and experiences. And sometimes the lies work and they get awards. They get newspapers and books written about them. And sometimes it just goes uncontested and they those stories just continue on and that's why I started writing you know some of my books about the military I had come home and there were some news articles about these people calling them heroes and I had served with these people and these guys were not heroes they did absolutely nothing in Iraq and the things that they did do in Iraq were actually harmful to the military and, and any causes over there so I think at that point is when I just really started writing and just said hey let's just Tell some true war stories, the good, the bad, the silly, the stupid, the the fun stuff that you would expect from a 20-year-old overseas and just just the real perspective of what it's like going overseas and serving in the military. And yeah, unfortunately, several people, I mean, there's always that 5% of people that are those bad apples, but I mean, those 5% can really do some damage. The reason I've gone into all of that, I, you know, I didn't read your your, your book about, um, I think it's called uh, Mass Casualties. Is that right? I think it's your diaries to some extent from being out there. Uh, those those are my direct journals that I kept while serving in Iraq. And then Civilianized was my story about coming home from Iraq and dealing with that process. And then my newest book, Just Another Mediating Dirtbag, is kind of a continuation somewhat between my girlfriend and I as she tried to turn me into a, vegan and i just tried to turn it back into a meat eater and uh my experiences in the military versus her kind of peace loving hippie experiences where our clash came from yeah and it's a it's a it's a hilarious story in some place and of course a very very sweet story uh just just before we get to that i mean having having read that and enjoyed it and then i i got a copy of civilianized and it's it's a tough read um 
and 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 I think we got to just spend a few minutes focusing on what people like uh, yourself <clears throat> go through. And I'm sure this is going to be true for people who are uh, exposed to the war in Ukraine as well. For you know, on the front lines, you you come home and it feels like you're you're you know put back into civilian life. You're told just deal with it, and it's impossible to deal with. And you go through this um, really heavy period of drinking. Uh, smoking like it seems like you're chain smoking. I could I could literally smell the smoke on the pages as I read, and and equally you there's there's um, addictions to painkillers. Uh, I think it's Vicodin in your case, but th- this is it's a tough tough story to read. And early on, you give yourself a three month deadline uh, before taking your life. Can, can you talk us through some of some of that as? As succinctly as possible, why three months? And ultimately, why didn't you take your life? Because for a lot of that three months, it looks like you're pretty determined to. Yeah, sure. I mean, when I came back from Iraq initially, um, I didn't realize that I was depressed or any of these things. And then it 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 takes a couple of days to hit you. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself back home and you've got no... You know, at that point, I was in the reserve, so I didn't have to report to duty for three months. So you got nothing to do. You got money in the bank. And I had turned 21 in Iraq. So now you're back home, able to drink for the first time. You're chain smoking cigarettes. And you've kind of lost this sense of purpose and this sense of camaraderie that you had with your buddies because now they're all back in separate parts of the world. And you have to come back to the real world. And I think what really hit me was coming home and just seeing that, I mean, people barely even took home the concept that we were still fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan by the time I had come home. And to have someone die in your hands a couple of weeks earlier, and then they come home and people not even realize what's still going on, it kind of just hits you that there's this big disconnect, you know? And then you, you come home and you feel like people don't care about your experiences, and then you get into the the context of it, you, you see what the papers are saying about the wars then you come home and these local papers are doing hometown hero pieces about the guys that aren't even really heroes they're kind of dirt bags and you kind of just find yourself going into this this dark zone of not wearing knowing where to find yourself or what to do with your time and that's what really hit me i mean the context of everything that we had happened over there the context of coming home and of these other people being called heroes and it kind of just hit me and i just found myself on this downward spiral from drinking and smoking and, and taking painkillers that I got in Iraq and some sleeping pills that uh, we were all taking in Iraq to help us sleep. And it just started on this downward um, spiral, trying to, I don't know, find some purpose in life again or find some meaning or just find something that would fill the hole that existed once you leave the war zone. Because right now they say there's, for the past couple of years when we were actively over in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was about 25% of veterans that were turning uh, home with PTSD. And the suicide rates for veterans in the U.S. are still pretty big. There are, there are about 22 veterans kill themselves a day in the United States. And the thing that I, I've found interesting since then is how much more likely a veteran is to kill themselves at home during peacetimes than they are actually during the war. So veterans are one of the most highest groups with the highest rate of uh, suicide rates. But they're all doing it back home during peacetimes, and they're not doing it in such high rates actually during war, during those times of 
intense chaos and death where you think maybe if that's the cause, that's when they might be most likely to kill themselves. But that's not what's happening. They're doing it when they're back home, maybe a year or two later. And I think what happens is there, there becomes that void in that context where they, they, they look at what was done, what they did, what was done to their buddies. They come back home in the context of the war, actions, changes, and it kind of has to make sense in their head, in their heart, in their soul. And then it, the context changes, and then, you know, it can just be a spiral downwards. You know, something can strengthen us or something can weaken us in ways. And we can always rebuild, but it can just start you on that downward spiral. And it might take a year or two to happen. It might take three years. You know, some people have different rates. But I think that's what we saw for a lot of our veterans. They just started down that downward spiral, and it took them, took them to not healthy places. And you, I'm not surprising, it's, uh, it's understandable, you gravitate to other veterans. There's a guy that you call Gunner that you meet uh, in Boston, I think it is, that you didn't know out in Iraq. And uh, he gets very close to committing suicide on one of your your, your heavy nights out. Uh, I think you literally pretty much talk him off a bridge. Um, so there's that sense of probably you're all in a bad place together and, and, and sort of commiserating together. Let's let's talk about how the writing gets some can get someone out of this and how it got you out of this because uh, I I know that you've 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 done a lot of work with other veterans on writing and you know I'm a writer myself but I've never had to work my way out of PTSD with writing so what are the what are the benefits of uh, of somebody writing and and as much as anything. Do you have to think that you're a writer to be able to write your way out of uh, this this kind of scenario, this kind of PTSD? Yeah, so I, I've helped a, a lot of veterans for, from different organizations these last couple of years uh, learn how to write and share their stories and get them published. And I did the same process for myself when I first started writing and came back. And to me, the biggest thing about writing about your stories is two things. Number one, it gives you something to focus on other than your, your thoughts or the you know, anything negative in your life. Like for me, when I first came back, like I said, you're in a war zone where it requires 100% of your focus, 100% of your mentality, your, your emotions, your physicality. And then you come home into the civilian world and it's just, it doesn't require you to show up the way it does in a war zone. It doesn't have the same sense of purpose, the passion. You're not fighting for your brothers beside you. You're not saving lives. And you just lose a lot of that passion and sense of purpose and unless you can fill that up with something, you know, a lot of guys look to fill it up with getting in fights or doing dangerous things or drugs or alcohol. So for me, writing became uh, my new sense of purpose and it became something I was passionate about. So I was able to fill this, this hole and this void that I felt in my life that was there because I had left the war zone. And writing just gave me that sense of purpose, that sense of passion and I've seen it help a lot of veterans as well, too. Gives them something to focus on besides those negative feelings. And then writing itself is a process that helps you make sense of things as well, too. As you're processing the the story and what happened, it gives people an opportunity to deal with it and look at it on a sheet of paper rather than playing it on repeat in their heads again and again. And it does force them to look at it from different perspectives and, and points of view as well. So I think writing itself just gives people something to focus on, and a sense of purpose and passion. And then it gives them a, a tool to look at a story uh, through a different lens, through the lens of a writer, rather than the lens of a person who just merely experienced something. And then when you look at it through the lens of a writer, 
you kind of there's certain tools you can have to look at it through different perspectives and take some give yourself some space when looking at it and looking at it as a person almost separate from you and then you can just see that person as almost a character rather than you who experienced it and i've seen that just even that alone help people make sense of their stories and almost connect with themselves in a different way with those writing groups um were they already established when you were setting about writing? And in terms of how you help other writers, um, are you using existing structures or have you set up your own groups so that you can actually make more of an effort to reach out to people who might need the help? So all the writing groups that I volunteered with and worked with veterans at, they had already been in existence for a couple of years, I guess, before I had gotten involved with them. Because I think one thing that we saw with these current or most recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is that we had veterans sharing their stories sooner, quicker, and almost in real time, faster than any other previous war. I mean, I've talked to Vietnam vets, even Tim O'Brien, a famous Vietnam veteran, veteran writer who wrote The Things They Carry. And those guys, they weren't sharing their stories about Vietnam until 10, 20 years later. And same thing for previous wars as well, to Korea, World War II. A lot of that stuff took years and years for those people to share their stories. Some of them never shared their stories 50, 60 years later. And I think for these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we saw veterans right away who were willing to share their stories and talk about what happened over there. I know a couple of guys who – I know one guy in particular, one of my favorite vet writers, uh, Kobe Bazell, who I think he even got in trouble for blogging while in the war zone in the Middle East. Like he was blogging actively while they're fighting. And I think he got in trouble for actually blogging during the war. So that's definitely a difference that we're seeing in these modern wartime writers, that they started writing about it right away and didn't wait that 10 or 20 years to share their stories. And I, I think that's a big thing that has, I've seen help a lot of veterans, being able to share their stories, learn from one another's stories, not have to wait 10 or 20 years for us to learn those lessons. And, and hear those stories. How much do people have to search within themselves to effectively write their way out of uh, the kind of issues that they're dealing with? I mean, I've, you know, it's a totally different perspective. I've written uh, two memoirs. It involves a lot of self-reflection, self-analysis. It, 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 it means kind of owning up to yourself and, uh, at times, admitting that you can be a bit of a dick or you have been a bit of a dick. Um, how easy is it to get uh, people who are essentially told to follow orders and not to question authority and not to, you know, to suppress their emotions, I guess, I'm making a, an assumption there, um, to actually open up about themselves so that they're, and their experiences so that their writing can be truly cathartic and be good writing as well? Yeah, I think I think the military guys have still have that sense of stoic, thousand yard stare, you know, don't talk about things kind of attitude more than any other group of, you know, men. It's military guys that have that stoic mindset of just, oh, we're not supposed to talk about these things. We're supposed to hold it all in. But I think the flip side is that, you know, those same guys who like maybe wouldn't go to therapy or share these stories with their families or even write these stories that would just be closed lips about it. Those same guys, you get them around a bonfire with a bunch of their military buddies and they're sharing those same stories, laughing, joking, 
So the biggest thing for me that's helped me, number one, to get these veterans to share their stories is being a veteran myself. You know, I've been there, done that. You know, we've got the same mindset and same mentality. And for me, for getting these guys to just uh, even share their stories is just trying to get them to share them as they would around a bonfire, you know, where it doesn't have to be literary. You don't have to write a book. You can just share your stories like you would with your buddies around the bonfire. And the, the next step is just helping them to define the truth of a situation. As I'm sure you know, a lot of people, when they write those stories, they try to create too much distance and they try to create that type of purple prose where it's just like, I felt like a raindrop uh, on the back of a hummingbird on a train. It's like, what, what does <laughs> yeah, that even yeah. mean? There's, there's, so, there's so much distance there. And like, I'll tell you one story that's my favorite example of this from, from grad school. Do, do you mind if I swear on your podcast? Just to, No, I can, beep it. I can beep it out if I need to. Go ahead. Okay. So I was in, I was in grad school and there was this woman who had written this you know, really intense story about um, being pregnant and losing her child. And she was carrying this baby to term, but there was no way that this baby would make it past birth. And she had chosen to carry the, the baby for the full nine months and just let this baby live for those nine months, knowing that it would never survive. And a very, very intense story, a uh, heartbreaking story. And her book was about the six and nine months afterwards, because after that baby had passed away, after she'd given birth, she had spent some time uh, with her husband, and then she had immediately gotten pregnant again. So she was dealing with being pregnant while still grieving for the loss of this child. And it was this very intense story, you know, heartbreaking story. And the way that she'd initially written it, it was that very purple prose where it was, it was hard to connect with or even understand what she was truly dealing with or truly feeling. It was just that intense purple prose, like, oh, I felt like a tornado ripping apart a flower that was, you know, and it was just hard to connect or deal with. And we had done this workshop with her for, for hours upon hours. And workshops like that, you kind of have to treat with kid gloves to an extent. You have to be harsh and help them grow as a writer, but you also have to be respectful and mindful of emotions and feelings. So we spent several hours going through this workshop and none of us really got a grasp on you know what was going on with the story, what she was feeling or what she was dealing with. And then after the workshop was done, no more talk about writing, workshops all done. She says to someone, she's like, you know what? When I lost my baby, all I wanted was, was my husband to fuck me and put a new baby inside me. And it was just, you know, it was just jaw dropping that she had tried to, to say that in 50 pages. None of us understood it. But in that one sentence, we all got it right off the bat. She wanted her husband to fuck her and put another baby inside her. And, and we all got it immediately. I mean, if you open up a book and page one, it says, my baby just died. All I want is my husband to fuck me and put another baby inside me. Right away, you know you're dealing with a narrator who's going to tell you the truth and who touched bottom of an issue. She's not hiding behind anything. She's not creating distance. She's just open and raw and honest. And that's for me, is the ideal in writing. Maybe not always having to be so uh, upfront and you know, swearing so much, but for me, that's the ideal of just that raw honesty. And my wife and I, we, we had a miscarriage. And I think if we had read a book like that, about like, okay, this is what happened and this is how I really felt. I mean, it's so much easier to connect with and know that you're dealing with a raw, honest narrator than someone who creates so much distance between you. 
I am really, really glad to hear you relay that story, Michael, uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, it's, there's uh, the, uh, the pain that people go through and, and uh, it has to be acknowledged, but I'm a big fan of visceral writing and and I've never been a purple prose writer. I'm I'm terrible with metaphors. I'm just utterly useless. But apparently, I know how to tell a story because I've had some books published. You know, it's not just the facts, man. But but there's a certain directness that for me is very, very, very effective. And and it's something I absolutely noticed uh, in in civilianized. But I got that that it's it to me that's really important because I agree if I opened a book or a short story that said that uh, sentence you know with the f word in there twice I would be like wow let me read on and if it was you know I'm feeling like a raindrop on a hummingbird on a tornado or something I'd be like yeah 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 you know we've we've all tried to uh, to come up with metaphors uh I, I've done the occasional writing workshop myself, and I do believe everybody has a story. I think there's a truth to that. I think the difficulty is that not everybody knows how to tell us their story. And so some people try and tell their story and they just don't have it in them. But I don't think that should stop them trying. I think that everybody who's had a life story deserves the opportunity and the time and space in their lives to be able to write it down. Yeah, no, I, I agree fully. I believe everyone has a story inside them. They just have to... Uh pull it out. And sometimes the story that people have inside them is not the story that they think it is. I mean, there's been plenty of writing groups where people have tried to write the story and it's a story about their mother. And it's like, oh, well, where's your father in this story? And they're like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And it's like, all right, well, there's there's something there. You know, there's something <laughs> there that you don't want to talk about, you know. And, and often the stories that we don't want to talk about are the most powerful stories because nobody wants to talk about those stories. You know, and if you're the one to be able to out, go out there and talk about that story, that's what makes it so powerful because nobody wants to tell those stories. You know, nobody wants to really write those stories, but forcing yourself to do that is, you know, what creates that powerful story for you, you know, and doing it in a raw, honest way and not allowing yourself that distance, which, which is tough. I mean, in, in writing classes, I can't tell you how many people would ball their eyes out writing and they just couldn't do it, whether they couldn't do it ever or just do it in that moment you know, it's, it's hard, you know, and it does take a lot of, a lot out of you. And it does take a lot of, uh, to guts to get out there and tell those stories in, in an honest way like that. It really, 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 really does. And I just finished reading a book, um, by somebody I had on the first episode of the second series, Matt Fitzgerald, it's called life is a marathon. I think this might be the, the perfect point for me to plug it actually as a book. He, he recommended it when, um, as a narrative nonfiction book he'd written, cause he's written a lot about the physiology of running and training and nutrition. And it's the story of him and his wife. He's white, she's black, but more to the point, she's ended, she ended up with bipolar disorder and it's a tough story holding that marriage together. It's a really, really, really tough story. And he has totally laid himself on the line and, um, you know, it's the hard story to tell. It's the one that you might feel like, hey, this is private. This is between us. But by telling it, I think you will help a lot of people get through their own relationships and, uh, you know, their own issues and their own issues with mental health with their partners. But it's I, I'm sure he had to dig deep to tell it. Yeah, really, really, really dig deep. So on that on that note, uh, your your new book, uh, just another meat eating dirtbag, is as you 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 said early on, it's a graphic novel, which you know is definitely a lighter form of uh, of of media than uh, than than just those very direct words you wrote in Civilian Eyes. Was it always going to be a graphic novel? Or did it start out as as another memoir? Well, early on in co college, I'd fallen in love with the format of graphic 
memoirs, you know, with just there's just been so many great graphic memoirs throughout the the, the years. And now Street Noise is putting a, a bunch of them out there, uh, my publisher. But I never thought I would write a graphic story because I'm a horrible artist. And I, I would just I'd already had some success with prose. And I, I wanted this story to be a graphic, uh, graphic novel memoir. And I just never thought I could make it happen because I'm a horrible artist. I never thought I'd find someone to be able to partner up with me. And then I was just on Reddit one day and I saw this amazing artist. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to reach out to this artist and see if they'll partner up with me. And they said, yeah. So I was like, oh, that's amazing. So we just worked on the book together. And it just it really just spoke to me as a graphic story just due to the content of animal rights juxtaposed with war. And those images of the slaughterhouses and animals being slaughtered and the images that I had in my head of the war and people being slaughtered and just showing those in a visual format and juxtaposing them and not just doing it in prose format is what really spoke to me about doing this book in a graphic format. Yeah, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by it. It's actually kind of like lingering ambition of mine um, to find a story <clears throat> that could be told that way. But I'm also fascinated, before we get into your love story here, uh, I'm also just fascinated by the process. Who sort of leads on this? Uh, does does your artist, Shay, come to you and say, I need you to write in this kind of bubble? Or do you say, all right, here, I've stripped down this chapter to these words. And then she tries to do drawings and comes back and says, yes, yeah, still too many words. Or can you feel something in here? I mean, I have no idea. Did I get even halfway closer? Well, the way it worked for her and I is we did some sample pages together. And I basically would write a bare bones type of script. And I realized early on that she had a good eye for things and I didn't want to give her too much. I didn't want to bog her down with too much detail because then it would kill her creativity. I would just give her the scenes, the character descriptions and let her, you know, maybe 60, 70 percent was what I wrote in the script. And then the other 30 to 40 percent, she was able to just interpret and create that interpretation on the page. It's almost if you think of like a movie, you, you write the script that includes each the dialogue and the scene descriptions, but then the director gets in there and interprets it their way and kind of creates the scenes and images. That's kind of what we did between her and I. I gave her a detailed script and that included the dialogues and scenes, but then she kind of just directed it and took it away and created the images to go with it. And, and then we would go back and forth on edits here and there, but I mean, for the most part, yeah, she she killed it on the images. Her art is is tremendous. It's very um, it, It's very endearing. And I love the cover image because it shows you uh, with uh, uh, what looks like five o'clock shadow, a bit more of a spiky haircut than you have uh, on the screen right now. Pint of beer in hand. Looks like you've got a cigarette in your mouth. And alongside you is this cute as a button blonde girl um, with earbuds in, smiling, listening to her music, uh, immersed, I guess, in whatever's coming out of her um, her phone, her, her MP3 player, whatever it may have been. And you do look like this uh, sort of like classically um, different couple. And that is really the, the, the driving force of the book, isn't it? That you fall in love with this person and like head over heels in love, but you've got these different lifestyles. Uh, so, so tell me a bit about more about this. You alluded to it, to it early on about her trying to change you and you trying to change her. And uh, what's, what's the core of the story here? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's just really a love story. I mean, it's, it's this humor there and there's heart there and there's stuff about animal rights and stuff like that. But overall, it, it's just a love story. I mean, this took place 
uh, shortly after I was back from the Iraq war. So I was still really in that, that zone of just returning from war and had all these experiences. And I was just this closed off stoic veteran. And here, here she was this just peace, love and hippie chick kind of, kind of deal. And she was heading in this direction towards animal rights, towards she was a vegetarian, becoming vegan and following all this animal rights and activism. And I was just heading towards this direction of just being this stoic, closed-minded kind of vet who just had his own idea of things. And we were in love, but we were just heading in these two different directions because of our, our past experiences. You know, an example would be like in Iraq, I, there, there were plenty of times where we'd be covered in blood or had these crazy things happen. Like there's one story I share in the book where I had donated some blood early in the morning at my hospital. And then later on that afternoon, I was doing surgery. And then our blood donations from that day were in the patient. So at one point, my own blood is shooting out at me through the patient. And then wow. later on that night, you go to the dining facility and just have spaghetti and meatballs for dinner, you know? So when I come back home and she's trying to show me all these videos of animals being slaughtered and all these grotesque things that she thinks is going to turn me into a vegetarian or animal rights activist, I'm just of the mindset of like, babe, I've already done a million times worse than this and dealt with this. I've had my own blood shoot out at me from a patient and stood in piles of my own blood. Uh, So these videos are going to do nothing for me. And then she would just go in this direction of just more and more of that. Like I, I used to say that she had PTV post-traumatic vegetarian disorder where (laughs) where she would see these she would see these images and videos and it would just give her those flashbacks like i was seeing in my buddies from the war you know my buddies from the war slamming cars fireworks gunshots in distance could put him back in that place and for her seeing someone eat steak or do these things would remind her of those videos she had watched she had she was going in that direction too where it was becoming almost too intense for her that she was getting to this bad spot too like almost her own type of depression in, in PTV because, you know, when you're an animal rights activist and a kind, caring person like her and you haven't turned yourself off to the world like I had been, there's so much, you know, hardship in the world. And she was just starting to feel it all. You know, her soul's like this exposed nerve ending. And that created a kind of dynamic between us, a, a tragic comic dynamic. You know, there's some humor in there as we try to change one another. But that was really the the main dynamic. And then Within that, there's some discussion on animal rights, the military, you know, dealing with differences in relationships and kind of putting it all together. In the book, it's a part of the narrative that you kind of decide to go effectively undercover and become vegetarian, but with the intent of actually getting her to quit vegetarianism as a lifelong, not lifelong, but since I've been 21, I've been vegetarian and I've been vegan for most of that time. So again, I, I, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's an amusing um, plot twist. Is that what really happened? I mean, did you become vegetarian and try and convince her to eat meat from that perspective? Well, that was, yeah, that was my plan at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I enjoy a good plan. I, I enjoy a good strategy and a, and a good planning phase. Uh, so that was my plan. It was the old Trojan horse, you know, because as a stupid mediator, anytime I would try to say anything, she'd be like, oh, ah, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, my plan, though, was that if I would say those same things as a fellow vegetarian, she would listen to him more likely. She'd be more likely to, like, take take the words in and it, so that I could commiserate with her and say, oh, I miss, I miss eating meat and cheese and stuff, don't you? If I said that as a mediator, she would just close off. But I thought if I said that as a fellow vegetarian, I could slowly win her back. Uh, my plan didn't work, you know, fully there. 
but I do enjoy a good plan. Right. Well, it didn't work. And it's an interesting one. I want to just check first uh, as, a, as a sort of segue from civilian eyes. There, there's, I didn't really mention it. There's a lot of one night stands in civilian eyes. I didn't even get to talk about the pickup artist aspects and there isn't time now, but there's a lot of one night stands. And then towards the end, a couple of longer relationships uh, in the in in just another meat eating dirtbag, the graphic novel that, that, that your partner's called Coco. Um, it, is she separate? You're saying that, that this was happening around the same period. Is uh, is she somebody distinct from everybody in Civilianized? Uh, she is the same woman I was with at the end of Civilianized. Did you stay together? Yes, yes. We're we're married with two kids now. All right. So you've been together. So you did stay together. That's wonderful. And did either of you succeed in changing the other's eating habits? Uh, so, I mean... We went back and forth several, several times. I mean, for this, as we tried to change each other and then the time period that this book covers, uh, it's gone through, you know, several iterations as I've tried to, you know, piece together the story and tell it. So, I mean, at the end of the book, I did become vegetarian for three years straight. And then I went back to eating meat, then became a vegan for a while, pescatarian for a while, back and forth. So for me, it wasn't a, a linear journey, but for her, she did stay vegan the entire time. So at one point in the book, she becomes vegan and she has stayed vegan the entire time. And both her children now are raised as vegetarian. So they've been vegetarians their entire life. It's interesting that then, then for somebody like yourself who has gone back and forth and hasn't made that full commitment, there are certainly elements early on in just another meat-eating dirtbag that would lead the reader to assume that you do uh, uh, become convinced by Coco. You do switch because there are there are pages put aside to the mistreatment of animals, the statistics, the the ways that animals are treated in slaughterhouses, etc. That is. Um, uh, maybe the equivalent of the videos that she was watching. Those those pages are put out there, I think, probably to, to, to shock and offend people and maybe get them to think again. So you've obviously you know, decided to put those figures in there, even though you know, you've, you've not found it uh, possible yourself or you've chosen not to uh, remain uh, or be a vegetarian. Well, I have gone back and forth. You know, at the, at the point of the story. I didn't want to hear any of the stuff she had to say or care about any of it. So, I mean, it hasn't been an as a certain journey for me as it has for her, but I, we are raising our kids fully vegetarian, keeping them nice and healthy that way. And, you know, I've still waffled back and forth. I, you know, I still might become a vegan, go back to being a vegan soon, you know, one of these days. It's just, for me, it hasn't been that single solid linear journey, even though I, I do agree with a lot of the, uh, the research and stuff that I shared, I believe it's all accurate. It just hasn't been as easy and, you know, that focus of my life that it is for her, you know, so she, she's turned, you know, dozens of people probably towards that vegetarian vegan lifestyle, you know, just by being the happy, healthy person that she is. And for her, I think it's just an easy road and not all of us have that easy road towards that vegan, vegetarian, healthy living. Yeah. Fairly, really fairly stated, Michael. I, um, you know, for one thing, I've never done an episode of this show fully on the subject. I'm I'm very self-conscious about it because I do recognize that at times people think that, uh, and not without not without some justification. Um, in fact, Coco comes across at times as one of these that we can be sort of, uh, you know, people are scared that we want to convert them. And I've always just felt that although I would love to see less uh, 
animals killed for for food and and mistreated for food and i see you know that this perfect triangle of health and morals you know health cruelty and the environment and i can talk to anybody about that for as long as they're willing to listen to me but i i always just figure maybe better off just leading by example and you know i seem to be happy enough i seem to be healthy enough i'm a i'm a pretty hardcore endurance athlete um and so i i in many ways would sooner lead by example and i i guess it's important to acknowledge that and to be honest i found it easier to give up meat than i did to give up smoking um way way easier so i i I, one can't assume that everybody is going to find everything easy to do even if they know it's possibly they might they might know in their heart it's the right thing to do they don't necessarily find it easy absolutely and to your point too i about smoking too i i found uh stopping smoking way harder than stopping to eat meat. I, I've often told my wife that I could be, I feel like I could be vegan a lot easier if I could start smoking again. I, yeah. I just feel like that would make, make my life so much easier. But, but for me, you know, what made me make those initial changes in the first place too was, you know, my wife was giving me a lot of good advice and, you know, showing me a lot of studies. But, you know, what really helped me turn the tide and what I talked about briefly in meeting dirtbag is meeting a bunch of veterans that were also vegan vegetarians and just seeing these badass dudes being vegan and vegetarians and not just you know i know you in the media you you hear it a lot of times they call like soy boys for all these vegans and vegetarians and i was kind of of that mindset until i met these badass army dudes that were vegan and vegetarian i was like man if these guys are against you know eating meat and stuff like that you know how can i be this fool for eating meat if these badass dudes are, are are for it you know yeah thanks for mentioning that because you do reference it in uh in the book and there is a movie there's a great movie called the game changers um is it plural yes it is the game changers that's actually about uh athleticism and and vegans and you know the world's strongest guy is in there and he's vegan yes and- that, that is a great movie I, i've seen that movie it's a great movie yeah, and that, and you mentioned something very important. One would make uh, one being one who is not served in the military would make an assumption that everybody in the military is is force fed a diet of sort of meat and potatoes, and that's what they want and that's what they like. And you're making the point that no, there were some badasses that you knew who were uh, who were vegan or vegetarian, and so if they could be in theory. Why couldn't anyone else? And it it. It's important because I certainly know with endurance athleticism, some of the greatest endurance runners in the world, a significant number of them are um, vegan slash vegetarian and uh, you know winning their trophies left, right and center. So I appreciate you making that point. Um, I'll give you the chance to talk a little bit about street noise because, I mean, I don't think you, you, you went straight to street noise. I think you got an agent and you ended up there. So tell me about your publishers because it's a great little company. So Street Noise Books is an amazing publisher that only right now is doing graphic memoirs. So, I mean, if you love graphic novels, you love comics, or if you love a great memoir, they are doing some amazing work over there for stories. And the graphic medium is in sequential art, really a growing medium right now. And just a unique way to tell stories and kind of capture the imagery and capture something in prose. And it's just a, a growing field right now with just some beautiful stuff being created. And that's where Street Noise has kind of decided to focus on. They've decided to focus on stories that mean something, that make a difference, and that are in this this fun new kind of format. So, I mean, if anyone's looking for stories that are making a difference in the world and that are actually about something, 
and that are in this super fun, engaging format, I mean, they should definitely check out Street Noise and all the, the cool stuff they're putting out. And Street Noise has been doing great things out there, getting a lot of press, a lot of good stuff for their books out there. So, I mean, they're definitely making a huge splash. For anybody who feels like they are struggling with some kind of mental uh uh, mental problems, PTSD in particular, veterans in particular, somehow they've stumbled on this but don't know where next to turn. How can they get in contact with somebody uh, from a writing group that can help them write, maybe write their way um, out of PTSD if, you know, if their problems aren't much more immediately damaging than that? Yeah, sure. I mean, three options. Uh, I'm a mentor at a group called um, the Veterans Writing Project. I actually just took on a new uh, writing protege that I'm working on right now for their story, an amazing writer. And so any veterans looking can go to the Veterans Writing Project. They could get matched with a mentor like myself or any other of the volunteers. They could go to a group called Warrior Writers, which is based out of Pennsylvania. And then they could always email me directly. I mean, it doesn't have to go through the organization for me to offer any tips or advice. And my, my website is michaelanthonyauthor.com. So three websites are Warrior Writers, Veterans Writing Project, and then you can email me directly at michaelanthonyauthor.com. Fantastic. And as always, I'm going to put those links in the uh, in the show notes and links to the book uh, and your and your previous books. And thanks so so much for taking part in this. Uh, it's it's really appreciated. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Tony. Thank you. And those show notes, as you hopefully know by now, are found somewhere on the app on your phone that you're listening to this show on or on your computer or indeed on YouTube. You just got to scroll around. You should find them. I'm always listening to my podcasts when I'm out and about and saying, oh, I've got to visit that person's website. Got to get their book. Got to listen to that show they recommended. And uh, I don't do it at the time. And then I forget all about it until it's too late. Uh, so, uh, you know, follow those links now. Yes, I guess what I'm saying. A couple of quick corrections. If you were thinking that, wow, Michael has achieved a lot as a 26-year-old, if he was only 17 when he went into the services in only 2013, uh, he went in uh, to the war in 2003. He's actually 36. Uh, that one was on him, but he still achieved a lot. And it was on me when I started talking about just another meat-eating dirtbag as a graphic novel. As a writer, I do know the difference between a novel and a memoir, and, and specifically street noise books is primarily concerned with the memoir first person uh, more factual based uh, graphic publications so that one was on me and there is one other thing i'd like to mention that there was so much we didn't get to discuss but you will have heard him reference both uh, the fact that they within the medical capacity that he was working in in Iraq, they uh, operated on all peoples. And you will also have heard that story about him donating blood uh, in the morning and it was sort of spurting out of the patient in front of him. Uh, it's revealed in just another meat-eating dirtbag that that patient was actually a intended suicide bomber. And uh, I think that's sort of relevant. I think it adds some poignancy to that anecdote and it also maybe reveals a little bit more about uh, the complexities of a military operation. And I always feel this is the second time I've had um, the own army vet on here talking about their, their experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I always feel a little bit weird because I have questions about the, the morality of it all myself. But I also recognize that um, that 
when we do consider, uh, for a lot of us, for somebody like myself, I'm just being honest here, never had to go to battle, never signed up. And um, it, it's, you know, when there is something that is perceived as just, and I would say the case of Ukraine fighting for its homeland at the point of recording this show, and I suspect for many months, if not years to come, is something entirely just. Uh, you know, we're comfortable with the notion of war if somebody else is doing the fighting. And in Ukraine, a lot of people have had no choice. The men folk have had no choice but to do the fighting. In the United States, in Britain, where I come from, you do have that choice. And, um, you know, Russians don't necessarily have that choice either. And I suspect that a lot of the people um, who are dying um, for Putin in Russia do not understand what they're fighting for. I mean, I think we know that. And even those who claim to know what they're fighting for, we could safely argue that, you know, they've been brainwashed or, or, or you know, had too much propaganda. The, or, I guess what I'm getting at is this is always complicated. I feature Zen Buddhists on this show. I would love to lean towards the pacifist side of things. Most of me does. But we live in a very, very complicated world. And um, I think it's really important that this show this hears all voices. And especially if we do at times decide, yeah, it's fine to invade Afghanistan because Osama bin Laden is hiding out there. Ten years later, we've got to be willing to take care of the veterans who return and don't even uh, you know, come across civilians who don't even realize we're still out there, which is what happened to Michael and his friends. That's my rant over. It's not much of a rant, to be quite honest. I've heard far, far worse. Uh, you can find One Step Beyond at all the regular social media places. Again, just look in the show notes. Um, it has been suggested and pointed out that podcasts are the new fanzines. And I agree with that as somebody who got their start doing a fanzine. And you may know that one reason this show went on hiatus was because I had a book coming out compiling my old fanzine, Jamming. And I thought it would be fun to do. We ended up doing 10 podcasts to promote the book I was talking and tracking down and talking with former contributors had a whale of a time and then I sort of went off and worked on finishing another memoir of my own and now that I'm back doing podcasts I just wanted to let you know the plan right now as we start 2023 regardless of when you're listening is that this show will be monthly and it will alternate on a fortnightly basis with the return of the jamming fanzine podcast, which will now become more of a fanzine podcast, really about the history of fanzines, talking to editors up and down uh, the spectrum and back and forth across the ages and uh, back and forth across the Atlantic and to other countries as well. I think at this point, trying to do a show every two weeks, uh, which was the original scope of One Step Beyond, is more than enough for me. I hope I can keep to that. The edits will be more simple. There will be less field recordings. Uh, the conversations will hopefully be brisker and they will hopefully be as good as that one you just heard. I'm going to sign off so we keep this under the one hour mark. Thanks to everybody who's always helped with this show and uh, I will see you on the next episode. Take care out there. Bye bye and peace. <laughs>